Our first reading tonight is from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 to 22, found on page 142. Moses convened all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and ordinances that I am, ad- that I am addressing to you today. You shall learn them and observe them diligently. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb, not with our ancestors did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all here, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the fire. At that time, I was, I was standing between the Lord and you to declare to you the words of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or female slave or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock for the resident alien in your or the resident alien in your towns so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. Honour your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, so that your days may be long and it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, neither shall you commit adultery, neither shall you steal, neither shall you bear false witness against your neighbour, neither shall you covet your neighbour's wife, Neither shall you desire your neighbor's house or field or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. These words the Lord spoke with a loud voice to your whole assembly at the mountain, out of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness, and he added no more. He wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. The second reading comes from Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 13, found on page 918. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if I had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin... Seizing an opportunity in the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, 
sin revived, and I died, and the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Did what is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin working death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. One of the mantras that you hear in leadership circles is the necessity to both uh, face the brutal facts, just how, how tough it is out there, how bad things are going, where exactly how we're doing as a, as a company, and you know, all that sort of thing. Face the brutal facts and at the same time, not be crushed by that, but to remain optimistic about prevailing through all the difficulties. Uh, typically, people tend to one or other of those ends. There, there are the, the people that are the problem people. They, they're all about the problem. They know how bad the problem is. It's a really bad problem. It's really hard. We're never going to get past it. Or then there are the, the optimistic people. They're just all very bright and happy, and it's no, no big deal. And, it's all, all, and, and both of those people tend not to really get anywhere. The trick is to do both at the same time. And the, the, the promise is that more or less, if you manage that, then you're likely to succeed in business, to face the brutal facts and remain optimistic about the outcome. Last week, we began our journey with the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans, uh, particularly picking up at chapter 7 and continuing through chapter 8. And um, I, I said that what Romans 7 and 8 do is they kind of draw the map of our souls. They draw the map of our souls. You, will, you can see yourself here if you have eyes to see. This tells you profound truths about yourself. Although even then, it's not quite about us. It's more about the great victory that God has won in Jesus Christ and locating ourselves in that. And if there's one thing you can say for Paul, it was that he was prepared to face the brutal facts. Uh, the brutal facts about himself and about us. I, I don't know whether you'd call him an optimist. That's an interesting question, actually. I haven't made up my mind on that one. Whether he's an optimist or not, I don't know. But he faced the facts. He's not content to skim the surface of life, to frame the fundamental challenges that we all face uh, in terms merely of our external circumstances, like our knowledge and understanding or our situation, our wealth or health or lack of those things. Now he goes all the way to the heart, to what he calls, as we saw last week in chapter 7, verse 5, the passions of sin. And that diagnosis turns out to be critical, since, as always, if you get the diagnosis wrong, it makes it very, very difficult to get the treatment right. And that superficial analysis, that superficial diagnosis, is, I think, what we tend to see happening. When we're more superficial than Paul, we find ourselves thinking that the, the basic issues that people face, for example, is ignorance. That, that what people need to do is to grow in their understanding about how to live and the, the right ways to behave and how to react to people. When your basic problem is ignorance, what inevitably is the solution is education. And so you get the, the safe schools program, for example. If there's bullying in our schools, what we need to do is you really need to educate people into how not to be bullies. We need to teach people the right ways. And as I say, whether that's parents teaching their children or increasingly schools teaching their students 
not just the curriculum, but also all of those life skills and even ethics that parents sometimes seem to sort of outsource to schools. Or, or the way the apostle puts it is that we turn to a focus on the law. In his case, of course, the law meant the Jewish law, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But whether it's specifically the, the Jewish law, the Torah, as it was called, or a different moral code, what we're beginning to see is that the law, the, the moral law, will never change a heart. It will never deal with the passions of sin. It can't. It's just not equipped for that. It's not up to that task. Which leads to the question that starts this section, chapter 7, verse 7. If the law fails to change hearts, if simply understanding and even agreeing with and following a moral code is not sufficiently strong to deal with a heart and, in fact, is even counterproductive. You remember what the Apostle said last week, uh, if you were here, uh, the law actually arouses the passions of sin. Um, it's, a, it's a deliberately sexual term that talks about that kind of arousal because that's the sort of realm that he's, he's sort of aware of. It. It's like that. I mean, he's not, he's not talking about sex. He's just saying that the, the law, instead of making things better, just makes them worse. It's crazy. The Torah. And it raises the question. Does that end up making the moral law, in fact, equivalent to sin? You see? That's the question he begins verse 7 with. And in answering that question, Paul takes us even deeper into the ways of our hearts. And we're going to break it open uh, under three headings. First, what the moral law can and does do. Second, what the moral law can't and doesn't do. And then finally, why that's actually good news. Why that's actually gospel. So firstly, what the moral law can and does do. I mentioned last week that part of what Paul is doing in this letter to the Rome, uh, Christians at Rome uh, is to combat a particularly vicious anti-Semitism. It's vicious because it's absolute. Uh, this view that was held by some of the Christians in Rome, we, we find out later in the book, um, is that God had unconditionally rejected his people Israel in parallel to the way that in the Old Covenant he had unconditionally elected them or chosen them, those chosen people. You might think that's pretty way out. Uh, you know, like, I mean, who would think that? Surely, I mean, come on, no one really thinks that, do they? And then your historical consciousness kind of clicks in again. You remember the 20th century, you think, oh, yeah, actually quite a lot of people thought that. And in fact, it turns out that that sort of view, this hatred of Jewish people and Jewishness in its core is actually surprisingly common throughout history. The Jewish nation, as Jewish, according to this view, was complicit in the crucifixion of Jesus and therefore they have irretrievably put themselves on the wrong side of God. And in particular, what that meant was that the Jewish way of life encapsulated in the Torah, the, the Old Testament law, that specific moral code that Jews were bound under, that was off limits to Christians and even to Jewish people who had become Christians. In effect, they were being told in Rome that, that they had to change not only their worship to include Jesus in the identity of God, but also to change their entire cultural practice as well. Just for example, not allowed to keep the Sabbath anymore. Not allowed to. They had to stop being Jewish in order to start being Christian. 
And it's in that context that what Paul is doing here makes sense. He has to, he has to really thread a needle. It's, it's, it's actually a very, very precise thing that he has to do because he's got to say two things at the same time. On the one hand, he agrees with the Roman Christians that, that all people, as he puts it at the start of the letter to the Romans, the Jew first and then also the non-Jew, the, the Gentile, all people should worship Jesus as the living and true Saviour and Lord. Yes, he agrees with the Romans about that. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean that the Jewish way of life encapsulated in the Torah, in the law, and especially the Ten Commandments, is somehow become evil. On the contrary, you can see he says um, three, four times that the law itself is good. Is it sin, he asks rhetorically in verse 7, by no means. Uh, that's the great ancient way of saying, you have got to be kidding. Right? Don't even think about it. Or again, verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Or again, verse 13, he refers to the law as that which is good. And finally, verse 14, he says simply, for we know that the law is spiritual. You can't get higher praise, actually. The law is spiritual. That is, the law is connected to what the Holy Spirit of God is doing. So what is it that's good about the Torah? this moral code? What, what does and can it do? Well, it's very important to see the example that Paul gives to illustrate his point. What the law does, of course, is to give definition to sin. Or as he puts it in verse 7, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And then he quotes the last of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet. And the, facts, the fact that he quotes that specific commandment about coveting is both deliberate and incredibly important. I mentioned last week the book by Robert Louis Stevenson, um, Strange Tale of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, it's a fascinating thought experiment that explores what it might be like if we could separate out the bad bits of ourselves from the good bits. Right? We all experience ourselves as, as, as having kind of good parts to us and, and also some pretty dark parts to us. And, and Stevenson does this thought experiment. He says, what if, what if you could separate them out from one another? You could be bad. You could be Mr. Hyde at night under the cover of darkness. But then during the day, you could be good. You could be the very respectable Dr. Jekyll. And so here's the thing. One of the purposes of that book is to show us that if we did that, our hide would be terrible. I mean, not just, not, not just what we think, which is kind of a little bit bad. You know, occasionally do some, you know. No, no. Desperately wicked. And one of the ways that we shield ourselves from the knowledge of the real depths of our hide is to stay at the surface. Um, we each, we all, all of us have a moral code of some sort or other, justice and honesty and generosity, at least, you know, some degree, not extreme, no, we shouldn't be extreme, but just some, some degree. And, and we have a moral code and we all say to ourselves one way or another so kind of frequently that we don't even really notice it. I live up to it. I basically keep it. And when you look at the commandments apart from the last commandment, 
that makes some sense, actually. You can do that. You can convince yourself of that. That's why Paul doesn't quote the others. Because it's in the Tenth Commandment that you get a specification of sin that shows what all the other commandments are actually getting at. You shall not covet. Now, of course, we still use the word uh, covet uh, because uh, it, re- it refers to that kind of wanting that's more than just wanting, that kind of desiring that's more than just desiring. It means to really, really want something, to inordinately desire it. It's a thing that happens in our hearts. And what the Apostle is laying out for us here is the fact that it's through the 10th commandment he came to understand that this coveting is the essence of sin. It's to want something more than God. To see that there is something beside God and his love and his salvation that I've got to have if I'm going to be happy. Or or to put it around the other way, um, not loving and resting so much in God that you can be content in any circumstance, in any situation. Covetousness is that state of discontent. And if you get a chance to read uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, it's it's a terrific read. Um, Hyde really is just kind of coveting in its quintessence. He's just kind of unrestrained covetousness. And Stevenson's point really is to create a mirror for us to look into and see ourselves. I need, I must have, I must be powerful, I must be wealthy, I must be beautiful, I must be married, I must have that if I'm to have life. And it's a black hole. You know, you know black holes that sort of this inverse energy thing, they just suck energy in endlessly. And they're never satisfied. It never, ever runs out of desire. The great German Reformation leader of the 16th century, Martin Luther, uh, used to say that you never break the other commandments without breaking the first commandment first. That's a very interesting, very insightful observation. You never murder or steal or lie or cheat without breaking the first commandment first, the first commandment, which is, uh, you shall serve no other gods apart from me, apart from the living and true God, the Lord. And, and Luther, Luther sees that you only break the other commandments without having taken your heart from God first. And what we're learning here is that there is another side to that same coin. Uh, the Ten Commandments are actually framed by the first and the last. You take your heart from the living and true God at this point or that point, that's breaking the first commandment, and you set it on something or someone else, that's breaking the last commandment. And everything else in between these two will always be the product of that dynamic of the heart. Um, do, Do you know this in your own experience. Do, do some hard work for yourself. Why, why do you get angry? You, I don't know, you, you, you might not be a sort of a, 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 an explode person, you might be a sort of simmer and sort of seethe person. What, but but if, you are, if, you, if you know what anger, why do you get angry? 
You get angry because something or someone gets between you and something you covet. And so you rage. Um, golf is my thing. I was playing golf this week. And uh, on the golf course, there's one really major rule, which is you're allowed to hit the ball anywhere you, you, you sort of have to hit it. And if, even if that hits someone else, that's fine. As long as when you hit the ball and it looks like it's going off course, you yell out four. Okay? At that point, you're safe. So we're on the golf course and I was playing with a, a group of people and this ball came whizzing across the, onto our, from another you know, hole over onto us, lands bang right next to my playing partner, rolls on, rolls right down past me, like right between my legs and, and it's like, whoa, freak out. Anyway, this guy comes and he's looking for his ball and um, he's looking in the wrong place and so my partner sort of yells at him, oh not yells, it sort of says in an in authoritative voice, uh, your ball's over here and it would have been nice to hear four. The guy goes nuts. He's the one who's hit the ball, who's nearly knocked my partner out, right? He goes completely nuts. He starts swearing. He starts threatening to beat him with a golf club and put it in orifices that it really doesn't belong. It's like he absolutely freaks out and gets angry. Now, now what do you do? You, 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 you go home at that and you just say, you know what? Here's, here's my depth of understanding of what just happened on the golf course to me. I broke the don't get angry moral rule and I'm going to try a lot harder to not break the don't get angry moral rule next time. That's what I've got to do. I've just got to try harder and be more disciplined and not break the rule. And isn't that the way most of us actually approach our own life and growth? There's a rule. You know when you've broken it and you say to yourself, I've got to try harder and not break it next time. We'll see how that goes. Do you see how superficial that is? To, to leave it only at the level of your will, I've got to try harder. And what Paul is doing here is inviting you to understand in the depths. This is what the law is good for because it will take you to your heart. What is it that, in this case, that guy, George was his name, uh, my playing partner's writing a report on him. Um, what is it that George was coveting that meant he just completely lost it on the golf course. If, 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 you, if you said to him before the game, you know what, do you want to get really angry and threaten to beat someone with a golf club today? Would he have said, yeah, I think that sounds like a good idea? Of course not. What was he wanting? What was he not getting that meant he lost it like that? Or, or, or maybe you're a worrier. Why do you worry? What's happening in your heart with worry? Worry is because something you've got to have, something you covet, is in danger. And you don't think that you can trust God with it. Now, don't mishear this. It's right to get uh, you know, a little bit angry at, at some things and it's right to worry a little bit about some things. That's, of course... And at the same time, this is not saying don't want things. That's the Buddhist approach, actually. The Buddhist philosophy recognises the point that Paul's making. It's very interesting. Um, it, it's got real insight at this point, uh, Buddhism, that the essence of sin is this coveting, this inordinate desire of the heart. But its response is to say, therefore, stop all desire. 
and to the degree that you stop desiring, that you stop wanting, or what is the same thing actually, to the degree that you stop loving, then you will stop suffering. And again, I don't know if you've, you know any wisdom about this. Sometimes um, withdrawing your affection from another, a, a, a thing or a, a hope or a person even, is a way of protecting yourself. Do you, do you know that? You can protect yourself like that. It'll work to some degree. Actually, the, the ultimate final state in Buddhism is the extinguishment of all desire even to be a you at all, to simply be absorbed into the great ocean of being. But what's so kind of brilliant about what Paul says here is that that's not his posture. It's not that wanting is bad. It's that inordinate, disordered, over-demanding wanting. Or, or as the way we put it here regularly is to describe what it is to live a good life as to love big things a big amount and to love medium things a medium amount and to love small things a small amount. You see, to, to desire big things a lot and desire medium things a medium amount, desire small things just a small amount because you love God most of all. It's only your a love for him most of all that will give order to all the other desires of your heart. And you'll love him most of all because he loves you infinitely. Do you see why Paul says that the law, and especially the law is summed up in the Ten Commandments, is good and holy and just and spiritual? It is. Because without it, you'll be left with just a superficial view of sin. You won't really know what sin is. You won't get to the heart. That's what the law does for you. Which leads to the second point. Well, what doesn't the law do? Because once you see what the law does do, it becomes pretty clear what the Lord doesn't and can't do. It can't show, uh, show you what to do about sin. Sin is like a hijacker. It takes the law and turns it into more sin. The law will show us the problem. It just can't do anything about the problem. And in fact, sin is so kind of tricky, so deceptive, uh, deceptive that when all you've got is the moral law to deal with over-desiring, then it actually makes the problem worse. Uh, you see, what's so interesting about this is that coveting can be what underlies not only all your immoral actions, it's equally true that coveting can be what underlies all of your moral actions as well. We saw a little of this last week, the way that being highly moral can be just as much a product of covetousness as being highly immoral. When you covet morality, it means that you, you don't want to feel like you have to rely on God's mercy. You're, you're one of the kind of really good people. Um, almost everyone thinks of themselves as one of the good people. You want to, want to make someone really offended? Just make a suggestion that they're not one of the good people. Try just suggesting to them that they're one of the bad people that really needs the mercy of God because they're really bad. Oh, what? Not me? Because, and then they'll tell you what their moral code is, which is set just a millimetre or two below their performance so that they sail over it. It makes for such huge problems, doesn't it? When, when that's your stance... 
a miserable kind of moral superiority in a person's heart, a cruelty and harshness and lack of sympathy towards other people. Did you see? Uh, the, the person who's the murderer has a coveting. Oh, sure, it takes the form of power and violence. But the very morally upright person can also just as much have a coveting in their heart and the form of the coveting is to look good in the eyes of other people or especially to look good in the eyes of themselves. Uh, Think about the highly specific, endlessly reinforced morality of the inner west. If you've been in the inner west, uh, even for a little while you'll know about this. The cardinal rule, right, the, the great moral code of the inner west is foundationally built on the single rule, do not judge people. Okay, do you, do you recognize this? Be a tolerant, accepting, non-judgmental person. And that's a good rule. It's holy and just and good. Except what does it produce? It produces an incredible self-righteousness in inner Westies. A glaringly obvious judgmentalism towards anyone who is judged to be intolerant or narrow or overly conservative. Or or as the apostle puts it, apart from the law, the sin of judgmentalism lies dead. But when the inner west commandment comes in, sin springs up. And the very commandment not to judge produces more judgment than ever before. The very rule about tolerance produces more intolerance than ever before. I mentioned that uh, we've moved to an apartment which has a kind of whole complex of buildings and, and this is rule number two for the inner west, right, which is community. We're going to be neighbourly to each other. And one of the rules of neighbourliness is pick up your dog's poo. It's a good rule. That's good neighbour. So what happens when someone doesn't pick up their dog's poo? People take photographs <laughs> and Facebook it and shame that person and hate on them And the very rule about being a neighbour produces people who are grossly unneighbourly. Do you see how this works? The law will never change people's hearts. It can't. The the same applies to all the other inner west rules about parenting and recycling and generosity and neighbourliness, so on and so on. The rules are good. But when applied to a heart untouched by the grace of God, all the rules will ever do is make for more sin. You can't put fire out with petrol. What's more, this is not just kind of interesting, abstract analysis for Paul. Notice how he describes the consequences of this in the most intense and personal terms. Verse 10, I died. This killed me. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me for sin. Seizing an opportunity in the commandment deceived me And through it, it killed me. This ruined my life. That's what he's saying. And it will ruin yours too, if this is the way you approach your life. The Christian conviction about sin is both both that it's objectively wrong and subjectively disastrous. Both of those two things. It's not only that sin is an offence against God, although that's true. It's just wrong for its own sake. But it's also that sin will kill you. It will. It will kill your joy, it will kill your peace, it will kill your relationships. This dynamic 
of, of sin, taking the law and just producing more sin, will, will, will kill any humility, it will kill any connection with other people, it will make you angry and upset, not at peace, impatient, demanding, fragile, bitter, complaining. That's what this all this dynamic. And most importantly, it will kill your intimacy with God. Which is why it will kill you entirely in the end. Because how could you end up anywhere else than eternal death if you cut yourself off from the God of eternal life? Or to put it around the other way, you see, goodness is not just right. It also works. It cuts with the grain of the universe, not against it. Because this is not a morally indifferent world, it's a world created good by a good God. Yes, it's a broken world, and it means often it will seem like evil wins, that lying and hating and betraying and brutalizing are things that make sense, but that's not true. That's not true. Not ultimately for a world that's being redeemed by its maker. Which leads to the third point. Why is this all actually good news? Because so far it all just seems a bit depressing, right? Right at the end of the passage in verse 13, Paul indicates that astonishingly, God has a purpose in all of this. This very dynamic that he's described, this, this fact that the law is hijacked by sin to multiply more sin like a virus, that when the, the law is brought to bear as a way of trying to put out the fires of sin, all that happens is sin gets worse. It's, it's like a, a cancer taking good cells and mutating them into that which is destructive and deathly. This thing, this terrible thing that sin does, well, it's not just meaningless. It's not just a bizarre accident. No, even in this, the wisdom of God is displayed. Even in this, God is at work. It's phrased in that complicated way uh, in verse 13, but the point that he's making is actually both simple and powerful when he says, in order that, you see that? In order that, there's a purpose that God has here. In order that, sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, the very fact that sin takes what is good and holy and just and spiritual, the law, the Torah, and twists it for bad, that has its, as its ultimate effect that you will hate sin more. Hate it. That sin, and especially the sins of the heart, actually become repulsive to you. Or as the Apostle puts it, it might become sinful beyond measure. Um, that so often, we, we hear people and we do for ourselves, we just excuse ourselves by talking about our sins in such trivial terms. Uh, it was a mistake. I couldn't help it. I was under too much pressure at the time. It just got away from me. I didn't really know what else to do. We just excuse it. We don't hate sin. We just shrug our shoulders at it. Later on in, Paul, uh, in Romans, Paul says we are not only to be lovers of what is good, but we're actually to be haters as well. We're to be haters of what is evil. To hate 
small bad things a small amount and to hate medium bad things a medium amount and to hate large bad things a large amount and to hate sin most of all. As I say, we live in a morally trivialising culture where the most profound thing we know to say about how to live is be yourself. Be yourself. Right? Just saying, it's so fascinating. Be your desires, in other words. What Paul says is the problem, our culture says, is the solution. Be your desires. Or as that great anthem from the movie Frozen put it, let it go. I, I won't sing. Let go of all the expectations and the rules, especially from others, and simply express yourself, know what your desires are, and just get on with being the authentic you by fulfilling them. And Paul says that is the way of death. The death of community, the death of sacrificial living, the death ultimately of love. No, we are to hate sin as we see it for what it is. And of course the moment when we do see it for what it is, when it's revealed in all its ultimate ugliness, is on the cross. It was my sins that held him there. Do you know that? It was my sins that held him there until it was accomplished. Sin is not just a few mistakes. It's not just a bit of understandable self-care. It's not even just the choice to be myself. Sin requires nothing less than the crucifixion of Jesus to extinguish it. It burns that ferociously. And at the same time, it's even more true to say that Jesus willingly gave himself to that. He handed himself over to the place of sin precisely so that we can be freed from sin, from its penalty and from its power and ultimately even from its presence. This is gospel because as you let that be the centrepiece of your heart, as you see Jesus, your heart will be changed. That The law can't do that. The moral code can't do that. The grace of God in Jesus Christ can. And it will. Your heart will be melted and you'll become a greater and greater hater and a greater and greater lover as well. A greater hater of sin and evil from the grand evils of tyrants and brutes to the petty evils of the covetousness and over-desire of our own hearts in all their myriad ways. Because we're greater and greater lovers of the God of all grace and goodness. You'll be changed from the inside. And as you do that, so you'll live more and more in service to the Lord. That's the first commandment, right? Serve the Lord your God only. Not under the old Torah, not under the old law hijacked into sin. No, in the glorious new life of the Spirit of the living God. Amen.